Here, then, was the world in miniature, the preening self-importance of princes and bishops, buttressed by wealth and titles and power, the cloying servility of their dependents, bent to the will of the elite, the sullen impotence of the bishop's army, hungry for vengeance and the spoils of war, the defiance of the Melchiorite artisans and workers, deluded by visions and condemned for heresy, and the peasant labourers, no better than serfs, press-ganged into turning the machinery of war, all huddled under a different moon. All were praying for a miracle, a prophecy, a heaven-sent angel who would validate their righteousness and take their side in a struggle in which everyone claimed to be acting in the name of the one true God. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to historian and writer Paul Hamm about his book, New Jerusalem, The Short Life and Terrible Death of Christendom's Most Defiant Sect. Paul Hamm, welcome. Thank you very much. The events depicted in New Jerusalem deal primarily with the consequences of the Reformation and the religious obsession that grew out of it, but the early 16th century seems to have been a time of particular unrest. Certainly, the the world in Europe in the early 16th century in general felt on the edge of the abyss. There was this very real sense that the world was coming to an end, that Judgment Day was upon the people of Europe, that Christendom had reached the end of the line. And there are many reasons for this, not simply... In the book of Revelation, I mean, people were reading the Bible for the first time in their local tongue. So they were reading about the apocalypse for the first time in their local language. This horrified them. They were absolutely terrified of what was coming. And this all came about because of the translation of the Old and New Testaments into the vernacular? That's right. The Old and New Testaments, for the first time in history, were translated into German, English, Dutch, Italian, Spanish. Coupled with that was the invention of the printing press. So, of course, these two factors were probably more important in driving the Reformation than any other uh, in terms of the spread of the Word of God. And the people were reading, uh, for example, Christ's Sermon on the Mount for the first time in their local language. And they had great trouble reconciling what they were reading with the world around them. What they saw was 1,500 years of Catholic power and wealth and richness and the the practice of selling pardons to sinners, which was the way the Catholic Church financed itself effectively. And around 1517, the year that Martin Luther published his 95 Theses denouncing the Catholic Church, that was the year that the biggest call for pardons went out by Rome to finance the completion of St. Peter's Cathedral in, in Rome. What Luther was railing against at that point was the, the, the practice of buying repentance, of selling pardons to the poor, uh, in exchange for some kind of fast track to paradise, uh, some uh, shortening their time in purgatory if you if you bought a pardon or an indulgence. And this outraged Luther, who, in his eyes, you, you could no more buy repentance than you could buy love or happiness. It had to be a sincere relationship with Christ in order to, to repent. And that's the fundamental message of the Protestant Reformation was that you didn't need a priest or an abbot or a, a friar to intercede on your behalf with God, you could develop a distinct and re- direct relationship with with Christ through prayer and through repent- repentance. 
you could talk directly to him mm. in a sense yeah. uh, through the Bible by being able to read the Bible or hear the Bible read. Absolutely. The Catholic Church didn't want people to read the Bible because it, 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 it contrasted so distinctly with what they were teaching. Uh, and this led to all kinds of interpretations of the Holy Book. What effect does the rise of literacy have on events in world history and, and who does it favour? Let's look at that word literacy because very few people could even read in their, their local language. So you saw little groups and huddles of, of people listening to the literate, reading the Bible to them, reading uh, the New Testament particularly. For many people, the Old Testament was one vast thou shalt not. You know, It, it was the, the first books of the Bible, Genesis, uh, Exodus, it, the Jewish Bible. Then the New Testament opened their eyes to a different message, which was one of forgiveness and charity and compassion, the idea of um, turning the other cheek, of, of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. They were reading this for the first time, and they were uh, sensing a completely new understanding of religion, of what it meant to have faith. It wasn't going to, to church on Sunday and confessing to your local priest and having no other idea really of what all that meant other than what the priest was telling you. For the first time, we were, they were able to read and they were able to see a path to heaven through the Bible in a direct relationship with, with Christ. The word revolutionary is used uh, you know, very, very lazily, but this was a distinct revolution in understanding in, 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 and, in, and in the love of God. It meant that people for the first time could love God directly. Did the dilemma exist in the now more apparent differences between the Old and the New Testament? Is that where the dilemma arose? There was certainly a distinction in people's minds about the message from the old, between the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament. Essentially, it was that... The Christian message of forgiveness, of charity and compassion was so eloquently expressed, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, that many of these cults and, and new faiths clung to the Sermon on the Mount as their message, as this was their faith. This expressed precisely the idea that the rich and powerful should not possess the fruits of their labor or their, or their, their work that, that they should not have to hand over money in exchange for a pardon from their local priest, that they should not have to beg and scrape in order to pay for that pardon. They, they should be um, entitled to pray to Christ on their own terms, effectively. And this is what Luther was, was saying. But also, there were many, many, many small and, and fanatical cults growing up, such as the Anabaptists, that were deemed to be fanatics in their own mind. They, theirs was the true interpretation of the Holy Word. We generally associate the Reformation with Martin Luther, but in fact the social and political landscape was much more complex and populated with a range of figures that the church regarded as heretics, or schwärmer, as mm. uh, they're known. Who were the schwärmer? This was a general term applied to uh, the, the Anabaptist movement uh, by Luther and others who dismissed them as a sort of heretical uh, outlier, really. So they weren't seen to be Christian. They were seen to be heretics, Satanists, the Antichrist. And essentially what the Anabaptists believed in was baptizing again or rebaptism. In their eyes, it was the first baptism that as an adult, you could elect to enter the Christian faith by choosing to be baptized into it. And they, they would argue, and correctly, that the Bible does not have, don't make any reference to infant baptism, that there's no, there's no compunction to baptize 
your baby. This was seen by them as a way for the Catholic Church to harvest souls. To, in other words, a kind of form of recruitment. This is the going back to the idea of original sin. So you had mm-hmm. to be baptized mm-hmm. as a child mm-hmm. in order to uh, divest yourself of that sin. Absolutely. And, and the Anabaptists believed in universal divine grace, that you were not necessarily born into sin, that a baby couldn't have sinned. They, they, they were quite beautifully literal-minded, uh, the Anabaptists. And scientifically, a lot of their ideas stack up, such as, for example, they didn't believe in the virgin birth. They, they didn't believe in, um, uh, in the Eucharist as the real presence. They believed the Eucharist was a symbolic representation of Christ's body. As opposed to a literal consumption of uh, mm. Christ's yes. body and his blood. Through, exactly. Through the, the, the Catholic yeah. Church believes in the real presence of Christ's flesh and blood in the wafer and the wine. And this, they, this the Anabaptists rejected. As, in fact, they, they used to go on rampages around uh, north cities in northern Europe, uh, damning the local priests as cannibals uh, who are cannibalizing the, the body of the Lord. And how could this be uh, anything but heretical? Melchior Hoffman wrote, The presence of beggars in a town is a sure sign that it has no Christian inhabitants. This statement tells us a lot about Hoffman's worldview. Who was he and what did he stand for? Melchior Hoffman was the spiritual pioneer, if you like, of the Anabaptist movement. He he fashioned himself as the new Elijah, a prophet from the Old Testament, whose guiding principle really was charity, compassion, peace. He started off inciting terrible riots because he was so enraged by the power of the Catholic Church that he, he would drive his parishioners on these sort of rampages against the icons. Certain times whole churches were, were wiped out. And, and, and though he incited these riots, it was really through his extraordinarily articulate and charismatic presence that he was saying, well, this, this idolatry has got to stop. He roamed around northern Europe and settled eventually in Strasbourg where he fashioned himself the new Elijah and come to me and be baptized by me and enter into our new faith, the effect of the Anabaptist faith, which became known, named after him, that particular branch of it called the Melchiorites, um, who then went on to leave Strasbourg and moved to Munster, uh, which they renamed the New Jerusalem. And this idea of free will, how did that come about? Why was that such a challenge, a theological challenge, to both the Catholics and the Lutherans? Well, the the concept of free will, that you had a choice as to whether you would become a Christian, that, that it was up to you to, to, to make that judgment, and that if you really had chosen the Christian faith, you had the free will to elect to be baptized into it. Um, it, they also the, the concept of free will meant that you you were if you believed in Christ and particularly on, on in his words in the Sermon on the Mount you should do good works you had the free will to help other people to uh, to do charity but to do the right thing by your fellow man and woman whereas the Lutheran faith the essence of Luther, of the Lutheran religion is that faith alone could get you to heaven that as long as you had faith in Christ, in the Christian message, that you were destined for, hopefully, for paradise and the afterlife. But the problem with that, in the eyes of the Anabaptists, is that what about those who profess to believe, profess to have the faith, but did not do any good works? And this was a huge dilemma for, for all of the early Christian faiths during the Reformation, is that the concept of the freedom to choose, whether it's to choose good works, whether it's to choose the kind of faith you followed, um, and if God had given us free will, then surely we should use it in some way that is for the for good, 
or evil. And that is the choice one has to make. It's a very modern concept, really, isn't it, this idea of free will? It is, but what do we mean by modern? Uh, this period is referred to as the early modern period, uh, the post-medieval age, where the horrors of the medieval mind, I suppose, uh, you, were, were quite – you had a great crushing weight of the Catholic Church bearing down on you that you, were, you had sinned, you were born into sin. The whole Augustinian idea of uh, we have sinned, we have to spend our lives repenting for that original sin, that whole concept was thrown up in the air by – well, the Anabaptists certainly, but but certainly as well the Lutherans who who questioned that concept. Hoffman seems to have been a person that first sought out or even created his own prophecies, and then sought to make them come true. For example, he spent six months in jail uh, for that very purpose, and pronouncing himself as the new Elijah. Was he a politician as well as a preacher, and were the two inseparable at the time? Hoffman would not have thought of himself as a politician in the way we understand the term. He, was, he saw himself as a spiritual guide to the members of a new faith named after him. He saw himself, he, he, he fashioned himself as the prophet Elijah, and people came to believe that he was in fact the reincarnation of Elijah. Elijah, um, central prophecy was the, the end times, the, 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 an apocalyptic vision of the future. And that's what they shared, the Anabaptists, this millennial or eschatological um, idea that, that Judgment Day was imminent. And that was endemic throughout Europe. It wasn't some sort of freakish or aberrational thing as we understand millennial cults in the 20th century, whether it's Jonestown or, or Waco in Texas or the, the Orange people. This was Luther himself agreed that, that Judgment Day was, was nigh. And it wasn't just the book of Revelation telling them this. It was all around them. The signs, for example, of uh, the, the plague of, of syphilis had reached Europe. And so this was God's judgment for lechery and lust. Um, you know, we've heard that before, of course, in our own time with, with AIDS. And, and people were hysterical about syphilis. It was terrifying. Also, the, the, the Muslim hordes, as they were cast at that time, were on at the gates of Europe. They had reached Vienna in 1529. And so they were paranoid and terrified of, the, of Islam, which was encroaching upon Christendom. This was another sign that the end times were here. There was a general horror of... Islam, and coupled with that was the great fissure then running through Christendom between the Protestant movement and the Catholic, the old Catholic Church, and then the Counter-Reformation coming later in the uh, in the 16th, 17th centuries, leading to the horrifying wars, wars of religion in the Holy Roman Empire. It's difficult for modern readers not to think of Melchior Hoffman and his followers as delusional. Is that a fair assessment, or is there a state of mind at work that we can no longer relate to? I think we would project onto Hoffman delusional, the words delusional, fanatical, uh, heretical. Um, but on the other hand, when you look at him in his own context, he was widely believed by members of the Anabaptist faith. He, was, he, was, he made a lot of sense in his interpretation of the New, New Testament. He, he believed in the literal reading of the Sermon on the Mount that you really did need to love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And there were incredible scenes of Anabaptists embracing their torturers and, and going to their deaths, these horrible deaths as martyrs, cheerfully because they were joining Christ. They, were re, they, they, they yearned for, the, for, a re, for a re-establishment of the apostolic church, the early Christian church, of, 
of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the kind of church that Christ had created where there was no vast hierarchy and the extraordinary richness of cathedrals and the, all the paraphernalia of the, of the Catholic faith. They yearn for a simple expression of Christ's charity. And that's what Hoffman was putting forward. And his, his, his successors in different ways and more violently put this forward. And remember, these people were persecuted all over Europe. If they fell into the hands of, of a Catholic city... They would be racked and tortured, hideous torture, and then put to death, either burnt at the stake, beheaded or drowned. Um, so there were amazingly courageous men and women who uh, to simply to utter that you were an Anabaptist or to join this, this, this branch of Christendom put a death sentence over your head. At what point does the movement achieve cult status? Which disciple or disciples of Hoffman were instrumental in bringing it to that point? The word cult is problematic because it is really quite a modern word and they would not have seen themselves at the time as a cult and, in fact, weren't really described by the contemporaries as as a cult. Probably a sect. The the word sect was more in in currency, I suppose. But after Hoffman was imprisoned in Strasbourg, his... He was too radical. Not even the not even the tolerant Lutheran town of Strasbourg could could put up with him. So he was put into a dungeon and left there to rot. Uh, although he was fed fairly well, and his successor was this great big brute of a man called John Matthias from Amsterdam, um, from Harlem, in fact, uh, a baker, um, towering figure, a long black beard, long black hair, and he instilled the wrath of God into the disciples of. The Melchiorite faith. Unlike Hoffman, he said, if you don't follow us, you'll be condemned to hell and you must come forward and be baptized into the Anabaptist faith. Your previous books have all dealt with aspects of 20th century history, uh, including Hitler, the Sandakan death marches, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Vietnam, Kokoda. Why did you decide to cast your research net back 500 years or so? My brief answer is that in all my work, um, of writing about conflict, particularly in the 20th century, there is always a religious underpinning to it. Whether it's Christian soldiers marching to their deaths in great numbers in World War I, whether it's a neo-crusade as uh, George W. Bush described the invasion of Iraq, um, there, there is always in the name of God we are doing this. And all, each, every side invokes their God. The, the Islamic State, for example, some people have even referred to Munster as a sort of Christian ISIS. So before we get on our high horses and start judging Islam as some, somehow uniquely violent faith, which is obviously absurd, it's in many branches of Islam, and we ought to look at our own backyard in the Christian faith and see that for hundreds of years, violence has been committed in the name of religion. So my reading... To, to address directly your question about religious history, which I've done a great deal of, I kept coming across the story of Munster. Now, I didn't, I'm not equipped to write a great history of the Reformation. That's been done brilliantly by religious scholars, particularly Diamond McCulloch. But I was fascinated by this one uh, story within the Reformation of Munster. It's been referred to in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. She refers to Munster. Margaret Yorsenar's great novel, The Abyss, she refers to her, her protagonist coming across the events in Munster, but then it's also touched upon and makes these sort of extraordinary cameo roles in most religious histories or histories of Christianity. And so I was determined to find out what happened there, um, both out of, from my own curiosity as a historian, but also as a sort of snapshot or, or an example of what people are prepared to do and how far they're prepared to go in the name of God. What were your sources for this research? I'm very glad you asked because I want, wanted to make it clear to, to anyone who's listening that, that this book 
uses direct quotes from people who participated in these events. I've had them translated from the original German documents, whether they be, for example, the sermons that Hoffman and Leyden were, were issuing in Munster or Strasbourg, whether it be the, the Inquisition at the end when the leaders of the Munster uprising were, were put on trial. These are all d- taken from original documents. So, so, so does the town of Munster still bear any of the physical scars of this uprising? In the city today, they, um, they, they're clearly fully aware of what happened there. It's a, it's a strange atmosphere in Munster today. That there's a sense that they're almost slightly embarrassed by this appalling event. It's a very conservative German town. Even though it was 500 years ago. Even though it was 500 years ago, they present. don't make a big noise about it. You, you've, got to look, you've got to look around town to find... There's no plaques, for example, of where... Recently, they've put a few up, but of where the sort of leaders lived. There's nothing really prominent. But the only prominent reminder of really what happened there are the three cages which have been erected and hang from the, the, the tower, the steeple of, of St. Lambert's Church in the middle of town. Now, those cages are the original ones where the three leaders, Leyden and his two, uh, his two sidekicks, uh, were, 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 they were executed and, and thrown into these cages. Why does the human race still cling to faith? even though it appears to repeatedly lead to self-destruction? The, the need for belief in something beyond ourselves is really the story of humanity. Um, whether we begin with the ancient gods of the pagan world or whether we're looking at the god in whom the Islamic extremist believes, there is this yearning for something to explain the sheer mystery and complexity and, and, and absurdity of our condition to give it some meaning beyond science. Science can help to explain where, how we've developed through evolution, but it cannot explain those ultimate questions uh, which the human mind and soul yearns for an answer. And so... Uh, there's no science of spirituality, for example. Th- and there's no science of consciousness, really. And the, I, the sense of the eternal I, that sense of me, and who am I on this rock spinning through space. The human eye, the first person, needs some kind of explanation. And they're prepared to fight to the death for that God in whom they believe. Throughout history, we've seen this, and this book exemplifies that in in the most horrific way. But um, I'm of the view that today we're seeing a return to religious wars in many parts of the world, uh, cynics would say it's for oil or for economic reasons. But, you know, Saudi Arabia is a very rich country. And that, that bread, the, the Wahhabite uh, Islamic uh, stream of Islam, which believes in the literal interpretation of the Koran uh, and which is a particularly violent uh, strain of, of, of Islam. And no one can deny that. We see it, uh, we see it all over Europe. I've been living in Paris through the, the Bataclan attacks. Um, but what we've got to examine also is, is, the, is where Christianity is heading at the moment. And the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, does believe, according to a recent biography which just has, come, has just come out, that he is destined as a leader of America to impose some kind of biblical interpretation of the law. Many people who are very strict believers in their faith often seem to interpret that as a personal message, that they are destined to be the tools of the Almighty. Um, General Haig, during the First World War, saw himself as a tool of the Almighty, that he must vanquish the Germans in the name of God. Uh, He wrote in his diary about this. They seem to feel that they've been chosen um, by some mystical, supernatural force, their God, 
to rule according to the dictate of the of the holy book. Um, in the case of um, America today, we've seen the acting Attorney General Whitaker has referred to New Testament legislation. His predecessor, Jeff Sessions, invoked Romans 13. This was St. Paul's letter of the Romans, which refers to the the God-ordained right of the government of the day to impose its authority and that everyone must obey those laws. When St. Paul wrote that letter to, Rome, to the Romans, he was effectively saying, you should obey your government's decree to readmit Christians and Jews into Roman society. So it was a message of tolerance. Jeff Sessions used that, that's exact, those exact words to justify the separation of parents and their children on the U.S.-Mexican border recently as a, as a deterrent to immigration. John of Leyden used the exact words to justify his tyranny in Munster. And autocrats and tyrants have used Romans 13 through history to justify some appalling law or, or some terrible kind of torture um, or to oppress their people. So that is with us. And I believe firmly that America is turning into a quasi-theocracy. If you look at the religious right, without them, the present regime in Washington could not have reached the White House. Biblical law is bumping up against secular law in the struggle for America's soul. New Jerusalem seems to have all the characteristics of a universal story and one that certainly resonates today. There's something quite allegorical about the content and style of New Jerusalem. Does time weaken the lessons of history? Ignorance weakens the lessons of history. A lack of education weakens the lessons of history. Um, the idea that uh, today there are various people in power who are scapegoating minorities and people, powerless people, immigrants, in order to shore up their, their power, their regimes, is an appalling rejection of the lessons of history. Because we see the first thing a tyrant or a, an autocrat or an authoritarian does to seek power is to find his or her scapegoat. Who can we blame for the ills of society? Who can we, who, who can we load up with responsibility for causing the problems we saw in 2008 with the global recession? By comparison, that was far more lenient than what happened after World War I, where the Nazis could not have risen to power. There's simply no no possible way that Hitler could have risen to power without World War I and the destruction it caused throughout Germany. And that is a lesson we should all be almost sort of holding at the front of our consciousness is that when the world enters an economic disaster after a world war or after any kind of conflict, the first thing you're going to see is extremists rising up and blaming it on someone, whether it's the Jews, whether it's ethnic minorities, um, the Muslims. And this is what we're seeing today. With complete rejection of the lessons of history. So the role of history really is, is to constantly remind us of uh, our failings, if you like. Constantly remind us of our failings and where it, it all went wrong then. That it can go It can go wrong terribly again. wrong again in a different way. And, but but, the, but the, the consciousness of those or the awareness of what can go wrong should be, I would have thought, um, uppermost in the minds of our leaders. But the people who seem to be the worst read of history... <laughs> Certainly, I would cite the President of the United States. I would cite many leaders who seem to believe that right, reading history is not for them, that, that that's all happened in the past and it doesn't apply to them somehow. They're the one group of people it does apply to. Paul Ham, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you very much for your time. New Jerusalem, The Short Life and Terrible Death of Christendom's Most Defiant Sect by Paul Ham 
is published by Penguin Random House and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening.